How many times have you heard an amazing story in a book or on TV and thought, I wish I could sit down with this person and hear more? The odds of contacting a public figure and having them respond is pretty low, so most of us never bother. I remember the first time I saw Ashanti, mostly because his name reminded me of the 90s R&B singer. It wasn't in person. It was actually in a documentary called The Mask You Live In, which featured Ashanti talking about the work his nonprofit does for young men of color in Oakland. Several months later, when Listen for a Change put out a call for storytellers, a friend of mine who was working at the Representation Project, the producers of that documentary, said, Hey, I can get you Ashanti. Not the 90s R&B singer, the guy in the documentary. Some emails were sent, and the rest is history. I'm Tai Chu, and this is Listen for a Change, a podcast featuring stories on social justice from voices often unheard. I started Listen for a Change as a monthly story hour that uses personal narratives to bring perspective and empathy to divided communities. This isn't just storytelling. This is an intervention to restore compassion. Ashanti is a striking individual. He's got a big frame and an even bigger smile to suit. When he walks into a room, you notice. When he laughs, you hear it. And when he tells a story, you listen. The first time I heard Ashanti's story was in a TED Talk. It is a gripping story on its own, but what makes it even more impactful is that he took his experience and used it to change the world for the better. In a way, That's what Listen for a Change tries to do. We work with people from unique circumstances to heal around, develop, and share their stories. The hope is that their story will then be that voice, once unheard, now providing insight and empathy to others. Ashanti's story does just that. Here now, we listen to Ashanti's story as it was recorded at our February 2017 Story Hour. So about 5.45 today, I was at Starbucks uh, getting prepared. And uh, something made me look up from the computer. I was sitting in a seat that I normally tell myself not to sit in because it's too close to the door. And I had something to look up, and I see a couple of young men passing by. They make kind of a weird eye contact. And then the third one, I think he's going to try and wave. And yet instead, he grabs my computer. And he's on his way, but I, I would, somehow I just had, had a moment of feeling that something was happening. And I held on to it. And then I stood up, and then he ran out the door. And a man on the other side said, I knew it was going to happen. Let's go get him. Let's go get him. I'll go with you. <laughs> and I was like, no, let me, I, I got to figure this out first. I got to figure this out. He said, no, look, I, I know, I'm, I saw them, I got you, I'm going to go with you. They're not, they're not even running. Let's go, let's go do it. I'm going to help you. And I said, you know, let me, let me try and figure this out. Let me, um, hold on, not yet, not yet. And I just started to my breathe, I tried to catch my breath, and I'm like, I started feeling the adrenaline starting to pick up because I'm like, he almost stole my computer. Like, I have a lot of work in that computer. Like, that would have messed my whole week up to, like, try and figure out how to get all this information back. And I'm like, I haven't even backed it up in, like, two months. Like, all the things are going through my head, and I'm like, I am going to go after them. (laughs) So I go to the restroom and get myself ready. I'm like, okay. Then I get my backpack, and I drive out where I think they went, 
and no one was there. And I was thinking, like, what was I going to do? Like, was I going to jump out of the car and revenge what he attempted to do? And I remember that what feeling was going through me in that moment, thank goodness that I'm a little bit more wise now. Because when I was 17, I didn't have that kind of control. I'm a mama's boy. My mom raised me by herself. I was raised by a single mother on welfare. My father died before I was born. So when my life started, it was already a mess when I showed up here on the planet. Like if you'd handed me a checklist in the womb and said, hey, how you want this light thing to work out? I would have chosen some very different options. <laughs> but no one gave me a choice. And so at 17 years old, my mom um, had just gotten married. I was a wrestler. I had just finished football season. Came home from wrestling practice hungry, just looking for some food. Go in the refrigerator, and I hear some arguing happening in her room, and her and her husband are arguing. She got married when I was maybe 13, 12, I don't know. But I didn't like the guy, so we didn't get along. He was a jerk. He was kind of mean. But I heard my mom say something in that moment that kind of shook me, because she said, um, I wish you would put your hands on me. Now, if you don't know black women speak, like, let me tell you what I wish you would means. I wish you would means you better not. <laughs> and I learned that by testing it out the hard way, right? I wish you would come home late. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me to, because I was actually planning to come home late. I wish you would take the big piece of chicken. Oh, um, you told me to take it. Like I, and it wasn't working out so well. So I knew in that moment that that was actually a threat. And so I go around the corner, I turn, and as I turn the corner, I see my mom hit the floor. Now, being the 17-year-old mama's boy that I am, I, am, I go into a rage. So I run in the room, I was like, I'll kill you. But this dude was strong. He was big. He held me by my throat against the wall. He was saying to me, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? I could barely breathe. My mom was like, let him go, let him go, let him go, let him go, let him go. As soon as he let me go, I ran out of the house, around the corner to my friend's house. I said, give me a gun. He said, <laughs> what are you talking about? Now, if you knew me at that time, I had already been accepted to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I was going to college. I was a 3.9 student. I was not a person who ever touched a gun. That's known, probably know what to do with a gun, but I wanted one. I knew where to get one, and I was angry enough that I would have figured out how to use it. I get back to my house. I'm parked on the wrong side of the street. The porch is here. I've got the paper bag on my seat. And as I turn to get out of the car and I see the porch of my house, I see the front page of the Oakland Tribune. College-bound senior, life over. Life destroyed. Checkmate. I don't know what the words were. I just know I saw a picture of me being marched down the steps in handcuffs by the police. I saw behind me my mom on the porch crying. Why is she crying? I, I was doing this for her. And that moment, uh, sitting in the car, um, I began to cry. 
Because all along, I was feeling rage. That's what was coming out. But deep down inside, I was scared. Like there's an enemy in my house, and I don't have the power to overcome his strength. I was scared. I was sad. I was like, wait, you mean you married a guy who's supposed to make our life better, and instead I got this in my house now? Like, what am I going to do? And everything I had with me, I went after him. I couldn't even take him. What do I do? But as a young man in Oakland, I wasn't really taught how to deal with sadness and fear. I had plenty of tools to deal with rage. I had a tool on my my side that would help me deal with the rage I was feeling, but nobody gave me tools of dealing with the sadness. No one gave me tools of dealing with the anger, the fear. And so I sat there and I cried. I don't know how long I cried, but I just know I was just water was falling down my face, tears. And I go back to my friend's house with the bag and I hand it to him and he's like, so what do I got to do with this? And I'm like, man, I didn't do nothing. And as part of me, like as he looked at me, like I felt weak. I felt like soft. I felt like I should have done something. But I did nothing but cry. And so since that journey of 17 years old, of figuring out what do I do with these, the emotional overload that comes upon me? What do I do with when I get to a moment where I'm wanting to react with the natural thing that comes to me? How do I shift it? How do I turn it into something else? Today in the United States, out of the 2.2 million people incarcerated, 93% of them are men. 93% of them are men. That would statistically say something is wrong with men. But as a little boy growing up, being figuring out what it means to be a man by people on the TV and the movies and people on the streets, I was told how you show you're a man. You be tough. You don't back down. You be dominant. Fear, stuff it away. Sadness, tuck it away. Man up. Go some balls. And so men, boys, grow up today believing that, hey, I can't show these emotions, so they stuff them, they stuff them, they stuff them. And on a moment of weakness, on a moment of something happens, the rage, which is clearly respected by the video games and the tough man movies and the, clearly the anger, if you can get angry enough, people will stay away from you. It pops out. And that moment of not being able to decipher, am I sad or am I angry? Am I afraid or am I angry? Like, anger takes over. Rage takes over. And in seconds, lives are destroyed. Not just the life of the person who's now locked up for their life, but the life they took, the life they evaded. The, whatever they did in that moment. As a man today, as I was on my way here to talk about this story of me being 17 and almost letting rage take over, Rage came back. It came back in a moment of me feeling like somebody was trying to take advantage of me. And luckily I've practiced. I practiced to take a moment and say, where am I at right now? Am I angry? Am I, am I feeling sad? Am I feeling afraid? How do I check the right emotion at the right space? 
So my work today with young men all over the Bay Area is giving young men tools, helping create social emotional leaders so that they can say, you know what, I'm actually pretty sad that what's happening with my mom right now, but I'm, I don't know what to do with it. How do you talk about it in a space where people don't think you're weak, where people don't think you're soft, where people don't think that you're not masculine because you feel? That's the society that we're trying to create. That's the world that we want to build, where men have tools, where young men growing up are learning tools to become social-emotional leaders, maybe just for themselves, maybe for just them and their friends, maybe for the rest of the community. That's what the Ever Forward Clubs do. I didn't start a program because I thought I wanted to start a program. I've been on this journey since that day that I almost destroyed my life because I had no tools of dealing with this what I was really feeling. There's a, a, a poem that I want to close with, um, and it's, uh, it, it fits right closely to what um, this story is. And the name of the poem is uh, Were I a Wolf by a man named Patrick Nolan. Were I a wolf, solitary tracker of the moon, my padded paws would pummel with urgent rhythmic rise, this primal lament that evades my heart. Against the night's moist, mossy carpet, till I broke free from the forest's dark, foreboding depths to the timberline. And with one ferocious, mournful note, let rip anguish from this outstretched throat. If only I were a wolf and not this pathetic creature called man whose broken, gnarled teeth snap close to grief, too choked by terror of these deep-chested, guttural emotions that would devour me whole if I suddenly let go. If only I were a wolf. But instead, I'm a mama's boy. Thank you. <laughs> Like a hosting a radio show right now. It's happening. <laughs> I met up with Ashanti at the office of his nonprofit in Oakland. Since he shared his story, we've become personal fans of each other's work. But with schedules that never quite aligned, it was a joy for both of us to finally sit down and catch up. Ashanti's organization has grown quite a bit since he was featured in the documentary. I sat down to ask him about that and to hear more about his story. So before this, I, I watched your video again, and I hadn't seen your video in maybe a year, I think, or a year and a half since you last told the story. Um, I'm inspired by your mom. I will say, I come, from, I come from a family where my mom also pretty much ruled the household and in many ways served in both roles um, and is, is an inspiration, but also a woman with a lot of facets to her. So I, at first I just want to hear you talk a little bit more about your mom, because she sounds like a really important person in your life. Yeah, thank you for asking. You know, um, I love my mom. Like, it is uh, definitely she has been the the person who has helped to kind of guide me and help me grow. I think being a single mother, she didn't know what she was doing the most part, right? And a lot of times I probably told her, you don't know what you're doing, right? But what do I know about raising myself either? Um, 
so my mom is still alive, thank God, and she's uh, she's an educator. She was a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I think part of my becoming a teacher was what I kind of got growing up. I was always helping grade papers and make packets and staple this, and I was I was doing helping her with her stuff, but I was doing the teaching stuff from home. Mm-hmm. Um, she re- just retired, um, and she lives here in Oakland still. And, you know, I think growing up, as I think about a lot more stories from her and things that have happened, it was a, it was a lot of challenging times, you know, and, I, and that story, you know, we don't talk about a lot of the, you know, a lot of old stuff, but every once in a while we'll talk about a funny story or whatever, and I, I came back from India just a couple of weeks ago, and she was a, uh, I let I took her uh, a gift, I left it on her table, and I didn't I forgot to put a note, so I go and I, I'm on my plane to another place. She says, "There's a bag on the table. <laughs> Is that for me?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I forgot to put a note inside." And so you know, I, I think that the my, we still are really close. You know, I'm a mama's boy, so deep down, like I. I think about it all the time. And I tell people, I say, you know, I, I can't imagine what I'm going to be able, to, what I'm going to do if something happens to her, and um, it just makes me. I feel it even thinking about it. So um, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for what she went through and what she sacrificed to raise me right. Right. I see a lot of young parents, you know, giving their kids to their grandparents or giving the kids to somebody else to raise. And I think, you know, I remember times where she went to go have a went to a party or whatever, and I went to my godmother's house, but it was never like. I'm gonna give you to somebody else to raise you. She was she was in charge, and and I'm thankful for that. You know, you call yourself a mama's boy. <laughs> As we know, there's a lot of stigma in society when boys, young men, particularly young men of color, get called a mama's boy. And so you own that title proudly. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I definitely only have owned it as an adult. I think it, being called a mama's boy when I was younger would probably have me in a fight, you know? And I think, I remember in elementary, I can just remember about the idea of a mama's boy. Like, in elementary school, since my father had died before I was born, my big anger button was around talking about my father. So if someone said something about my mom, I'd be like, so what? Because I, I know you're wrong because she lives with me. But if they said something about my father... I actually would tell people what my button was, mm. and if they wanted to push it, I would tell them how to push it. Mm. And so when I think about saying that, like, I'm a mama's boy, it's because I think for so long I never wanted to be considered a mama's boy. Now, when I say it, I say it in jest, but I say it in a thing that I, I'm i really deeply connected to my mom. Like, she um, is a big part of my life, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful. You know, I've as an educator for 13 years and administrator, I recognize how many parents don't, do the parenting role. How many parents um, uh, blame others? And I, I just was thankful that my mom, you know, I, when I would come home and tell my mom something that happened to, uh, with a teacher, my mom always believed the teacher. I'm like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, lady? I'm your child. Mm-hmm. How dare you believe this teacher? Mm-hmm. And my mom would be like, well, I know you. <laughs> and, you know, and when I, would, when I was an administrator and I was meet with the parents, some parents could never believe their child could ever do anything wrong. And I was, I, was, I was like, what is that? And I think that, you know, as an adult, I'm like, wow. My mom, she was, she was at least wise enough to be like, I believe my son, I love my son, but also I know my son. And therefore, she gave me the benefit of the doubt, but also she held me accountable to my behavior and actions, which was which what helped me grow to a really, a, a, who I think I am today, you know? I think the kindness and, gen- and caring 
was initiated by her. You know, I, I remember, I don't know how much she's going to use, but I know, remember one story, it was a Christmas, and there was a, a young man in my apartment building, he was like maybe seven or eight, maybe around my same, my same age, and his mom never bought him anything for Christmas. Like, it was like, everyone knew it. He actually didn't, probably didn't have any, maybe one pair of clothes. Mm. They never get to come outside. So it's Christmas. My mom buys me all these these gifts or whatever. I get gifts. And then that later that morning, she's like, um, I want you to go give a gift to Steven. Mm. I'm like, what? One of, one of yours. Yeah, one of mine. <laughs> I, I think like, like, it was like a forced empathy exercise. Like, wait a minute. Why didn't you just buy him a gift? You wanted him to have a gift. Why didn't you just buy him an extra gift or not give me a gift? Why would you give me a gift and then make me give one away? And I remember us having this argument, and she, and she, in in her own way, she, you know, with a mother trying to figure out how do you inspire, engage. She's like, "Well, fine then," and she and she didn't. It was like more of a she guilted me into it, but I was like, "Why? What?" I remember. I will never forget the feeling of it. Like uh, I have this idea, like she wanted me to give it away because I wanted to give it away, but I don't know. She thinks she knew how to do that. How do you make somebody want to give something of theirs away? How do you teach that? Like. It's mine. I just got it like a couple hours ago. Why do I want to give it away? And I think I was thankful when I got when I gave it to him. I gave him. I did go give him a gift because I felt like I had to. Um, to see his face afterwards, I was thankful I did. Mm. But in the moment of coming up to that moment, it was really a challenge. It was a it was an argument. Mm. We were having an argument, and we were. It, it, it was something that I think about a lot. You know, I don't think about it all the time, but it was like I I love giving gifts. I love giving gifts. And I think my mom instilled that in me that, yeah, you know, we don't have a lot. I didn't have a lot of things. I only had maybe five gifts. But she wanted me to give one of them away. It was, And I think that helped to begin to build in me this idea that if you have, you have you have something to give. If you have nothing, then you have nothing to give. But um, And maybe she didn't know that she could have just bought him a gift herself. Maybe she wanted to teach me. But I don't know. You know, anyway, I think about all the things I when I work with young men and I ask them, hey, how much are you giving away? Mm. We can all complain about what we don't have, but I can show you somebody who has less. Mm. And I think that's what I've, I learned so much from her all the time. In your story, we really don't talk about your father that much at all. But you did mention that he died before you were born. Yes. Um, what do you know about him? And as you know, for a lot of young men, their relationship with their father greatly influences their perception of and performance of masculinity. And so how do you think that might have played into who you are today? So my father, I don't know about him. Um, I don't know a little bit more about the story, the, the ending story. Um, he was a barber. I knew he was a barber. Everyone, he was really just easygoing. He had a brother, my brother, Uncle Johnny. Johnny was a, the wild kid. Um, but my father... Um, he and his father died a week before, like ten days before he died. Oh, wow. So basically, leading up to my father's, leading up to my birth, which they all both died the same year I was born, to nineteen seventy four. <laughs> so my father, my grandfather died in Arkansas. My father left Oakland. He went to Arkansas for his father's family for his father's funeral. He then said, "You know what? I need to get my act together." So he was going to move to Arkansas. Mm. So he came back to California. You know, my mom weren't, they weren't like um, together. They, they were like boyfriend, girlfriend, but they weren't like married. So he was going to move to Arkansas. 
He came back to Oakland, and in those 10 days before, as he was preparing to close up his barbershop and move to Arkansas, um, is when he died. So leading up to my birth, I lost both my father and my grandfather. And it, it was, it was you know, as I learned more about the story, I think I learned the story about how he died when I was like 11, and I cried that whole night. And, um, you know, he cried, he died with, you know, smoking some marijuana in the 70s with some friends. And um, I guess somebody thought it wasn't strong enough, so they laced it with something else, and his heart couldn't handle it. And instead of them taking him to the hospital to get him some help, they took him to my grandmother's house, and by the time ambulance or whatever could have happened, my, he died. So, you know, I, I've had this love. I've, I've had this really hate relationship with marijuana because it, it took my father away. Um, and so I'm kind of afraid of it, you know. So, you know, the fact that here in California it's legalized or whatever, I have this kind of fear of it. And so it's, yeah, so that I don't know why that part came up, but I think it's just from my own heart. It's like I remember just growing up and friends, you know, be smoking, and I'm like, no, nah, I'm not touching that. You know, just like thinking that it was going to be the the catalyst to my own death, you know, but that's that's what happened. So I I don't know, you know, I'm still learning more a little bit about. I only have like maybe three or four pictures of him, so that that's very little. I mean, I, I look like him, um, you know. If he's not purposely smiling, he looks like he's frowning. You know, just the <laughs> shape of his lips, and that's how people always say, "Are you mad?" I'm like, "No, I'm just I'm just sitting here," but because you know, so I. Yeah, it's a lot I've been still learning, you know? And how did his absence or, like, the memory of him affect your growing up? Well, I think that's the biggest memory I have of him of not being there. And so I think, for me, it's been a journey of every time I see a, a man with his son, like, even today, like, I I feel it. I'm like, I think I feel part of it. Like, man, I would have liked to have had a father who took me to go get ice cream, a smoothie, coffee, whatever. Walk to the store, to the park. It was it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a wound, right? It's a they call it a father wound, and I try and turn it into a scar where I can just see it and be like, okay, I remember that. But it still feels like more like a wound. Like I feel it, and I wish I didn't feel it. I wish I could just turn it off. And so I think it, his absence just um, made me always just wonder, like. You know why? Kind of why me? But also, as I look back, I'm like, oh wow, there was a lot of people who came along who gave me little tidbits and little nuggets here and there. But while it's happening, you're like, man, there's nothing for me. And I think that no one who came around was like, I want to support you to help fulfill this role. No one ever said that. So people were just trying to help in their own way, but they weren't really providing a lot of support around that. So I think for me, as when I joined, when I started Ever Forward, I think it was really by helping young people who get what I didn't have, what no one ever provided for me. And that's, that's where we have a really good success with young men. Um, and we have some young men who have their fathers, right? But they may not have a tight relationship with their father. They have a present father who's alive, but there's no, he, there's no connection. There's no love in the relationship, you know? You know, he's a provider, but he's emotionally absent, right? Yeah. And we have some who don't have fathers there at all. So we, uh, we didn't start this with that mission in mind, but we know that a lot of our young men just are looking for uh, just um, some some guidance, some support, and we try and, as an organization, try and provide some of that. What's something from your childhood? You work with a lot of kids now um, around expression and masculinity and all of these themes. What's something from your childhood that you wish you had someone to talk to 
but you didn't. Hmm. Wow. That's a great question. You know, I think growing up in the community where I grew up, you know, there was all these, I think a lot of young men, we talked about sex a lot. Like, they talked about sex a lot. I didn't really talk about it because I didn't really, I wasn't having sex. But <laughs> but I pretended like I did, right? Because right? you can't be the kid who's not, right? And I think I just had no one to talk to about, like, why do I feel like I don't fit into all these conversations people are having, right? Like, I, I watched wrestling up until the age of, I want to say high school, even probably past high school. Like, if you couldn't have told me that, Wrestling was not real. Like WWE was not real. You and I are gonna have a fight, right? Because I was like, "What? You tripping, right? I, let me show you this move. I'll put this move on you. I bet you feel it, right?" And it was like, but like if you if, if you're not talking about like real sports or football or basketball, then it's like something's wrong with you. You're not like tough enough, man enough. And so I thought, like, man, is everything I do that like, doesn't fit the other mold of everything else make me like? that much such an anomaly or such you know so different I just didn't I didn't have anywhere to be where I could be like just like the things I liked and not feel like I was judged or whatever and I think that's I mean you know fathers I think could provide that some support you know even a mentor it's like okay you like to do that like when I wanted to go to wrestling matches I had to like raise a lot of money to buy myself to like buy a ticket or go with my cousin or something and we would have to just figure it out right it was nobody who was saying it's okay that you like wrestling right it was almost like it was almost like why do you want to go to that right like as opposed to being able to have somebody kind of help you spark the things you're interested in so you can hey whether it's real or not it's something you enjoy right and I, and I think that the the challenge of of just trying to figure it out was always like man do I always, like my mom, she always had an opinion about things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, she was in charge. But sometimes I, I didn't like her answers, mm-hmm. you know? Like my mom thought, my mom was like trying to help me when I was trying to get a girl's phone number. Mm-hmm. And my mom, all my mom's advice didn't work. It, her, I don't know what she was saying. I don't, I don't even know what she, exa- what exa- I can't even think, I probably have blocked those out of my memory of like what example she gave me. But I remember it not working. <laughs> I remember like, Mama, you don't know what you're talking about. That does not work for nobody, right? Yeah. And so it's kind of like I wanted somebody to help me figure those things out. How do you, how do you ask for somebody's phone number without? It's, it's awkward anyway. But you know, I, I think for me it was just a journey of growing up. And I think, you know, all along the way it was like, how do you feel tough enough? How do you feel strong enough? How do you, how do you have confidence? Where do you get confidence from? How do you feel resolute in your own body and your own being? And know that you're okay, and that you're gonna be okay. Mm-hmm. I had no one to really tell me, huh, like you're gonna be okay. You know, like, like I, at home, I was responsible for so much stuff. Like I was helping raise my siblings, and I was cooking and cleaning and all that. I was always having a, something to do, and and sometimes I didn't have a buffer. Sometimes I didn't even have a buffer to be like, I'm, I'm annoyed by all of this. Who do I talk to about that? Like I can't. Tell my mom that necessarily that I'm feeling irritated and frustrated all the time, and so I just felt like it was like it was a journey of trying to figure out who do I talk to about those real things that I was told that well men shouldn't feel that thing, you shouldn't feel sad or or you shouldn't feel afraid. But what happens when you do? 
And I, I think those are things I really wanted to have somebody to talk about. All right. We ask all of our storytellers this question. What is your untold story? What is something that people don't know about you just by looking at you? <laughs> wow. Wow. There's a lot. That, that is a lot. That, that's, a, that, that's, you know, that's the story of what we do in our workshops. Um, our workshops are around giving people space to talk about those things. And we have them start with that prompt. Like, you know, you can't tell by looking at me. And, um, man, there's so many things that people couldn't tell by looking at me. I think um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, there's so many things, and there's, like, there's a lot of, 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 of trauma that I'm still working through that I'm, I'm still trying to figure out when do I talk about that trauma and that. But I think one of the things that I, I don't talk much about is you know, being that I started raising my siblings or helping raise my siblings really early, like at seven years old, I found some pictures the other day. I was like making pancakes and my brother and sister, and I was, you know, I was the oldest, so I was in charge of doing a lot of things. And I think deep down, you know, I think like I want kids. Mm. But right now, when anytime I think about having a kid, like I think of all the work that I had to do to help raise my siblings. And so I don't think of it as like, oh, I get to have a kid. I think of it as, oh my God, I gotta change diapers and make formula and play pampers and blah, blah, blah. Like I think of work. I, if I did, I don't know if I, if I had, if, if, if the way I was raised, if it had been different, that I've been like looking forward to the opportunity to bond with a baby and raise and ba- change the diapers and blah, blah, blah. But I remember the absolute daunting work of being a kid raising other kids and I don't have the desire for that. And that sometimes makes me sad. Um, people, you know, people like, people like to say, so are you, you have kids? I'm like, nope. And they're like, you know, are you married? I'm like, nope. They're like, uh, why? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Um, deep down, I'm still trying to like just enjoy being me. And I think it's, it's a hard question, right? Because, you know, people want a good answer, but I don't. I'm like, wow, I wish there was an easy answer. Um, and so I think that's one thing is that I, 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 I think the mentoring I get to do with other young people is this idea that I really want to be a parent, um, but I have this barrier between me and, and I think that's why. Yeah, so a lot. So that adds a lot of layers. So there's like, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not married because I think that you know, you know, not all women want kids, but I imagine I want kids, right? But I don't want to be like, no, I can't. I don't want to do kids, right? So you gotta. It's better just to be like, I'm good, <laughs> you know. Like, and so I think it's a lot of. That's a deep question, and I wish I had. Um, it's, it's it's some processing that I'm still doing. So, uh, but I know that it's in connection with me and uh, family. So you've talked about this already quite a bit, um, but I want to hear a little bit more and kind of you know the mission around it, but. Tell us about the nonprofit that you chose to represent. Obviously, it's very near and dear to your heart, and it's something that you yourself uh, founded. So tell us about the Ever Forward Club. Yeah, so Ever Forward is a youth development organization. We uh, serve and support uh, young men directly in our clubs, Ever Forward Club. That's middle school and high school. Uh, we serve teachers, parents, community workers, social workers, people who actually support young men in their communities in their work. 
uh, through professional development, so Ever Forward Professional Development. And then we have these Ever Forward experiences, which are uh, community-wide, that's more outward-facing work, and work that we get to do around the world, around um, getting the word out around what are we dealing with in our lives about our masks. And that's based on our work being featured in the documentary, The Mask You Live In. So um, Ever Forward, I started when I was a first-year teacher at San Lorenzo High School and back in 2004. That was when we actually officially launched. We were about to hit our um, 15th year anniversary, which I'm really excited about. And uh, our organization is really on a mission to like help transform the way our young people connect with their schools and the way schools connect with our young people. It started with Ever Forward Club, just a club of young men in their schools. And now we do workshops all over, whether they're with, you know, uh, you know, co-ed groups, whether they're with the only young men who is our, our specialty, um, or whether they, you know, bring us in to do, you know, uh, gender breakout groups or whatever the school is looking to support their young people around. Uh, it's been a really big help for us. And so, um, you know, we last year, I say in total, um, in our campaign, the 100,000 Mass Challenge, which is, uh, we've been collecting masks for the last two, three years. We collected about 27,000 masks um, from about 10 different countries. Uh, we're every day we're like reaching out to new schools. Schools are reaching out to us. They want to do the activity. They heard about it in, a, in, a, in the documentary or they heard about it in some of our posts. So we're in the process of getting the word out about the 100,000 mask challenge. Um, and that's been exciting. It's been really like that's what's been taking us to a lots of new communities. And we have our direct service, which the Everford Club right here in the Bay Area. So the, that's the, the club that I – well, it's a program that I created. And, you know, and I was saying that, you know, I was a volunteer for the first 13 years, you know, maybe 12 years. And this is only my in, entering my second full year of being hired as executive director. And um, it's been a journey. It's been a, 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 definitely a, a product of love and of heart. And now trying to build an organization is very different, right? Because I speak to people all the time who want to start nonprofits. And I'm like, are you sure? You want to just join us because uh, we could probably use your help and your talent, right? And some people say, well, no, I just want to start my own. I'm like, all right, but let me let you know it ain't for the faint of heart, right? Because every month you're chasing your money. You're like a hunter, you know? You know, like got to put on your armor and go out to the world and be like, I'm here to get money. And you got to, you know, and, and so that's, the, that's not the funnest part of the work. The funnest part of the work is the mentoring and the young lives we get to change. But now as a, having a bigger vision, I have to do bigger things and I have to operate at a higher level. And so that's been the, that's been the journey, you know, it's a, it's a, from just a teacher trying to help some kids pass algebra to now an organization that is doing work in, you know, 10, 12 countries around the world. Uh, it's beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to watch it grow. But um, we're still learning as we go, you know. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the show, be sure to check out listenchange.org to find our next in-person story hour and to learn more about our storytelling workshops. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our production team for this episode is Tunde Demurin and Isaac Silk. I'm Tai Chu, and remember, a story untold is simply a thought.